All right, everyone, time to kick off season three of Holding Court here. Patrick McEnroe here. We finished up 2021 focusing quite a bit on the Peng Shui situation. Of course, we will stay on top of that as that story continues to unfold. But since it's just a couple of weeks away from the first tennis major of the year, of course, that's the Australian Open. I thought we would switch gears a little bit and turn our focus down under to the Australian Open. And I am very, very happy to welcome into the program today Dr. Norman Swan, who was born in Scotland but moved to Australia in the early 80s to continue a career in pediatrics. Uh, but then he found his way into the journalism world and the broadcasting world where he's been incredibly successful for the last 40 years for ABC, down in Australia, for other networks as well. And he has one of the most popular podcasts now going down under called the Corona cast. So let's welcome in Dr. Norman Swan to the program. He's won many awards in the broadcasting world as well. And many, oh, I don't know, I guess... Would it be correct, Norman, to say that you're a little bit like the Dr. Anthony Fauci of Australia, or would I be a little off base with that? Yeah, no, no, I am not the doctor. I'm not uh, the Tony Fauci of Australia. Um, I might come in for some of the attacks that Tony Fauci gets because, but Tony Fauci is a real expert. What I am is um, I trained in medicine in Scotland and specialized in pediatrics, but then had a midlife crisis in my late 20s and became a broadcaster and journalist. So I spent most of my career reporting on health and medicine, but I've always had an interest in pandemics. So in a sense, this pandemic, I was kind of ready for this pandemic. I never thought I'd ever live through it, through a pandemic, but I was ready for it. So medical school is interested in public health, and even though I did pediatrics, and then I uh, I did a television series for Channel 4 in Britain in the late 80s, early 90s on, pan on new diseases and pandemics so, and, and reported on HIV AIDS. So I was kind of ready for it when it, when it came and understood you know, what was going to happen. And the, the thing about this pandemic is people think it's, it's new. Well, it's a new, there's no question, it's a new bug, it's a new virus, but no textbook of public health will have to be rewritten as a result of COVID-19. It's behaved the way pandemics have for thousands of years, uh, which is fascinating, worrying that we don't learn our lessons. But uh, to, it's a long answer for a short question, but is essentially, no, I'm not the 20 Fauci. I'm a journalist who observes and with some, some background knowledge. Yeah, you haven't, you haven't worked for the government. Of course, that's what Dr. Fauci's done here in the United States for so long. But... Uh, when you when you look at what's happened, you know, coming from the United States, and of course we're getting ready to cover the Australian Open, the big tennis tournament, which is of course one of the big sporting events in all the world, and particularly in Australia. Unfortunately, Norman, I won't be making the trip again this year with ESPN. We're going to be covering it from back here in, in beautiful Bristol, Connecticut, headquarters of ESPN. But as it's sort of taken taken over the world and obviously Australia has dealt with it a, a, a bit differently than a lot of other countries, you know, pretty severe lockdowns. Where, what, what's the state of the coronavirus right now as we're just a couple of weeks away from what we hope will be a successful Australian Open tennis tournament? Well, we've had a major shift in coronavirus and our approach to it in the last month or so. Um, I, I, you know, and, the, and the thing about this, and everybody listening to your podcast, Patrick, would know this, is that you, you can't predict anything with this virus. I mean, I've been interviewing researchers 
people who know about viruses, and they've just stopped predicting. They've got no idea what's going to happen next. So if you and I had been talking six weeks ago, uh, we'd have been talking about Delta, we'd have been talking about very low case numbers in Australia, we'd have been talking about the importance of vaccination to prevent transmission. And then what happens? Omicron comes along. So we had a, um, we've gone through this um, epidemic with severe border controls that are just almost incomprehensible to a North American audience, where it's been very hard for people to get into Australia or out of Australia. And that has saved Australians many, many infections. So that's been the prime, because we're a big island, it's been easy to control that, much easier than the United States. And so that's controlled it. And then we went to a very big lockdown, 2020 at March, and we've been very quick to respond to outbreaks. So an outbreak has happened. We've gone back into lockdown. And in fact, Melbourne, which is where the open is going to take place in Victoria, New South Wales, Victoria, um, Australia, the, um, they've had more days in lockdown than any other city in the world. And essentially, we got down to virtually zero spread, very, very low numbers. So such low, we would go into lockdown with three cases which to a North American audience just sounds like, what? You know, <laughs> right, I get that on my block. 100,000 yeah. a, a, yeah. a day. That's right. Um, but for some of Australia, it's meant within the bounds of their state, an almost normal life. We've gone about things um, and gone to the beach, gone to bars, et cetera, et cetera, and had freedoms when we've not been in lockdown that many people in the United States, Britain, France, Europe, et cetera, have not had. Now, what happened was that we were very slow on immunization, on COVID vaccination. And, it's, and it's, I'm sorry to be taking so long with the answer, but it actually it's contextual. So we were very slow with getting going on immunization. We we're very slow in procuring vaccines. Our federal government has been, um, you know, a, a bit slow about many of the public health measures they should be taking. It's been our states that have been ahead of the federal government. Um, in terms of response. And the federal government was slow in procuring vaccines. However, um, the big states, New South Wales and Victoria, had outbreaks, in big outbreaks in June of this year, big for us. And it really provoked massive uptake of immunization. And, and Australia is a very good immunization country. 95% of our kids are immunized against childhood diseases. Um, when there's been a fear, a scare campaign overseas, but say mumps, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, Australians have kind of ignored it, taken a very pragmatic approach and got their kids immunized. And, um, and so it has been with, with the COVID-19 vaccine. Our anti-vaxxers, I mean, again, you would find this surprising knowing what the situation in the United States, maybe 5% of the population. You know, not 30 or 40 percent. It's not politically. It is a little bit politically driven, but it's a tiny proportion. So in a in the last six months, we have got to 90 percent of 12 plus immunized, fully either first or second doses. So and we're going to start immunizing five year olds quite soon. So the vast majority of Australians are immunized. Now, if you've been talking six weeks ago pre-Omicron, that's why the, the rules about immunization saying you've got to be fully vaxxed before you come into the country, because with Delta, Pfizer, 
and the other immunizations were very good at stopping transmission. And therefore, you wanted people to be fully vaccinated when they came in, because if you missed an infection before they got on the plane and they got here, they were unlikely to have caught it because of vaccination. And so it made sense. And we had QR code. We still have actually QR codes before you get into a bar or a restaurant and so on. You've got to show your vaccination certificate. And that's all about transmission and a bit about you know, motivating people to get their vaccine. Omicron has changed that. So Omicron has come. We've got these very high levels of vaccination. And essentially, um, the state governments and the federal government have decided, even though they would deny this, they've decided to let it rip. And they've decided to let it rip on a hope and a prayer that Omicron is indeed as mild as the South Africans and others say it is. Now, there is evidence to suggest that, but talking about your first question, Tony Fauci, Tony Fauci is still very reserved about whether or not it is milder. It's probably showing itself as milder at the moment because most of us, at least in many countries, have either had COVID-19 or have been immunized. And therefore, when we get it, we, we resist it to some extent. But what with Omicron, it evades the vaccine to some extent, to a significant extent, actually. So it no longer protects against transmission. So you can get infected. And the way I describe this is it's like the First World War and trench warfare. And uh, imagine the vaccines are your trenches and warfare and the enemies coming towards you. Now, with Delta, the, the military forces of your immune system were strong enough to hold the attack at the first line of trench, trenches. Now, that's failing with Omicron hmm. because the hardest job of any vaccine is to protect against infection. That's a really difficult task because you've really got to get everything there to control that onslaught. Now, what's happened then with uh, Omicron is retreated to the second line of defense, which is, does it actually kill you or put you in hospital? And it's holding that defense. But because, now here's the illogicality now of some of our policies, is it makes less sense now, because they don't protect against transmission, it makes less sense to say to overseas visitors, you can't get in unless you're vaccinated. The only way it makes some sense is, well, if you get COVID here, we're not gonna have to pay for your hospital care right. um, if you get into hospital. But, but as a public health measure, it makes less sense to insist on it now because of Omicron. And, um, but nonetheless, they've maintained that. And, um, and a lot of other countries have got quite tough as well. Well, what they're saying here, um, the government here seems to be saying, Norman, that if you're vaccinated, you'll be well protected as far as getting um, severely ill. So like, I'm a perfect Correct. example. I got it initially in March, 2020. I just got it again over Christmas. I was double vaxxed. I had just gotten the booster, but maybe the booster hadn't kicked in yet. Um, and, and, the, and the symptoms were even milder the second time. So uh, what would you say to the authorities here? And is there, is there enough data yet that suggests that that's, that's going to be the case? In other words, it sounds, I mean, I'm hearing all from all sorts of people where I live in the New York area that everybody's getting it. Everybody's getting relatively mild symptoms. How does that, um, if, if that's true, and that turns out to be the case and for the long term, 
how do you think that will affect who can who can and who cannot get into Australia, for example, to, to go to the tennis tournament, as an example? Um, well, it should it should ease it up because what's happening is that, that at the moment, so let's just be you know let's be clear, it's at the moment with Omicron, everybody is going to get infected at some point. Now that does not mean well I don't need to get vaccinated because the risk is that Omicron is just as severe as any other virus. The only reason it seems to be milder is that you've been vaccinated or had disease in the past. If you're totally unvaccinated, so our hospitalizations in Australia, we're getting we're getting probably up to a hundred thousand cases a day at the moment nationally, and and hospitalizations are not going up at that same rate, but they are going up but largely in unvaccinated people. So you want to be vaccinated. But every time you get COVID or vaccinated, it's like another immunization. So you've had, what, two infections, right. two doses. You've, you've, you've almost had the equivalent of four doses of vaccine, right. you know, either naturally or so on. So you are like a walking World War I, <laughs> you know, right. the uh, trench warfare um, uh, soldier. And, um, and so if this maintains itself, then um, it, it, we stop living in a pandemic world and we start living in, in a world like influenza, like flu, where it comes and goes, we're kind of used to it, with the occasional year, and this is what coronavirus could do, is it could mutate and become a pandemic again by mutating the same way as flu does. So Australia is a bit slow and conservative about these things. So we still haven't raised the ban on travel from Southern Africa. I don't know why you know, you have. It's absolutely logical to do that because there's so many cases around the world, but we still haven't done that. So we'll be slow to change, but there's no re reason to maintain. You know, at some point, there's no reason to maintain this. Um, you know, at the moment, to get into the United States, you've got to show a positive, a negative PCR a day before you you get into the United States. Well, again, what's the point in that after a period of time, if there's so much of this virus ar around and a relatively small number of people bringing it in. So with, we've got 100,000 cases a day and 60, you know, yesterday, I think it was 66 of those cases came in from overseas. So it's tiny compared to the, the, the process. So I don't know, but I would have thought by ne next year's open, things will be much, much more normal. Now, the caveat here is this virus changes all the time. People who've been working with viruses all their lives and looking at the evolution of viruses have stopped predicting what's going to happen next. So there will be another variant. And the next variant to survive will be resisting vaccine or will be more resistant to vaccines. It could be more severe, not less severe. Unlikely, but it could be because it's not in the virus's interests to be to kill you, because it, all it wants to do is spread mm. and survive. If it kills too many people, it doesn't survive. But it could be more severe. Um, so we just don't know what's around the corner. But if it stays like this now, with high levels of immunity in the population, the next one we could resist just like, uh, like, like Omicron. And there's new, there's new vaccines being produced and developed, and they may work better, even better than the existing ones. I'm here on Holding Court speaking to Dr. Norman Swan from Australia. He's a physician. He's a journalist. He has a, a very successful podcast of his own uh, that he started during 
the pandemic called CoronaCast, which is a great name, by the way, Norman. So well mm-hmm. done on that. But I know it's extremely popular in Australia. And as you just said, uh, maybe it's 5% of people unvaccinated in Australia, the population that can get the vaccine. As you know, here in the U.S., it's you know somewhere between 35 and 40%, which is a very large number, 100 million people around about. What would you say to those people? Because I have a few of them I know pretty well who are very anti-vaccine uh, for whatever reason. And we come up with a multitude of reasons. But what would be your message to those people? Well, it's several messages. One is, um, so there, there are two or three different kinds of people. In, with um, an attitude towards vaccination. Um, some of them are, you know, they believe it's 5G, it's, you know, the government's implanting a microchip to my arm. Um, and I, I, I just don't have very much to say to those people. It's just Looney Tunes and you know, that's fine. But if you care about your family and you care about your own health, I mean, these same people will probably be jogging, uh, watching what they eat and so on, here's something that can kill you pretty quickly. And if it doesn't kill you, it can maim you with long COVID for several months. Now, um, we live in a world where you're free to make your own decisions. And if that's your decision, just make it look. But there's nothing, you, know, you imagine that there's this, you know, people say, oh, well, I'll, I'll, hive the, I'll hive the ivermectin. Give me the ivermectin or the hydroxychloroquine. Well, these things don't work. And they'll say, oh, well, I'll have one of the antiviral drugs. Well, the antiviral drugs have side effects and very clear side effects. I mean, they're, they're great drugs, but they're, they're not perfect drugs. And they've got far more side effects than the vaccines. So wherever you look, it makes logical sense to have the vaccine. And, uh, and people have this idea that these vaccines were rushed. I mean, here are a few of the myths. Right. Um, by people who have, so these are not people who think it's 5G or you're implanting a market chip in my arm, but they've got rational, I think they are rational concerns. They're saying, well, they've been rushed. They were put into place too quickly. Um, and you hear that a lot, of, a, a lot of the time. Well, in fact, they, they weren't rushed at all. They were ready to go when the pandemic hit because there was a competition between scientists several years ago. Who, so essentially people who knew what they were talking about <clears throat> knew we were not ready for the next pandemic. And they wanted a vaccine technology or vaccine technologies that could turn around a new vaccine very quickly to a virus that the world had never seen before. And four vaccine technologies won that competition, one of which was mRNA, which is Pfizer and Moderna, another which is called Viral Vector, and that's Johnson or AstraZeneca. Um, And a third one was, I, I, I can never remember the third and fourth, but so four vaccine technology, or there's a third, which was an Australian vaccine technology, actually, which fell by the wayside. Anyway, they were ready to go. So when the virus hit and they got the genome in January of 2020, they were, within weeks, they had vaccines designed to go. And if, if you've taken any prescription drug in the United States or Australia or anywhere else, these vaccines were approved at the same level of evidence as any prescription vaccine. It just happened so quickly is because we're in a pandemic. Thousands of people were willing to volunteer for trials. You got exposed to the virus very quickly, so they knew the vaccines worked. And so by the end of the year, 2020, we knew that these vaccines worked and they were safe. And then what's happened is billions and billions of doses of these vaccines have been given 
as if we were in a goldfish bowl. We've actually been monitoring these. We've never before in medical history monitored a new drug in if anything like the scrutiny that these vaccines have had, which is a fantastic thing. So we now know the safety, there's no mystery here. We know what the safety profile of these vaccines are. There's nothing else to find and in billion, uh, billions of doses. So the vaccines are safe. And um, so that, that's the only reassurance I can give people. And some people still resist the notion, well, that's up to them. Um, but they will, you know, if they catch it, they stand a chance of getting seriously ill and or being sick for quite a few months of the year and, um, and passing it on to their families and particularly to the young children in their families who are not yet eligible to be vaccinated. So in the end, it's up to, it's up to people, but it's, you know, the, the idea that it's a government plot and it's taking away my essential freedoms and you know, it's like taking away my gun or what have you, to, to me, that's incomprehensible. You, if you're selfish and thinking about yourself, you should have the vaccine. So uh, the, the latest podcast you did, uh, Norman, on CoronaCast uh, was just before the holidays. And I know you're taking a little break, a well-deserved break from the podcast until February. But your co-host said, what can people do, can individuals do in the sort of short term as as Omicron was just is just going to take hold. And you said something I found very interesting and fascinating. You said, well, this isn't, a, of course, you try to do things individually to help yourself in your overall health and your well-being uh, and so on and so forth. But when you're talking about a pandemic, it's more than just about doing something for yourself. So could, could you elaborate on that for uh, this yeah. American audience that's listening? Because I found that very fascinating. So we, we have a conservative um, federal government um, and we have um, in the largest state New South Wales conservative state government and the rhetoric with Omicron coming along was this is about individual responsibility which would be you know that that's not an unusual uh, phase for, for people living in the United States right? that's what people live by now if you open a public health textbook you will not find anywhere in that public health textbook, anything terribly much about individual responsibility when it comes to big problems. Um, so for example, we don't talk about individual responsibility when we talk about smoking. So you know, California was the first state really, I think one of the first states in the world to ban smoking in outdoor you know, restaurants, restaurant gardens and so on, really strict anti-smoking regulations, partly because you were trying to protect others from other people's smoke. Um, wearing seatbelts. We don't rely on individual responsibility for wearing seatbelts. We say it's the law. You've got to wear a seatbelt. Drink driving. We don't say it's individual responsibility not to take that third drink in the bar. We say you know, if you get caught, you're not allowed to do it. And if you get caught, we'll throw the book at you. Right. Um, and, even, and even with childhood immunization, we say you know, no jab, no play or getting to school, so we're strict about that too. So when you've got a pandemic, um, yeah, individual responsibility is important in terms of your individual behavior. Do you wear a mask? Do you, do you care about spreading it to others? But in the end, you've actually got to, the whole community has got to take a hit to protect the whole, the whole community in a sense. So um, 
and 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 we in Australia probably accept far more than than an American audience would accept. We accept we 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 will dutifully shine our QR code. We will wear a mask outdoors. We will um, we with very few exceptions. Um, we're we're a bit like a Scandinavian country in that sense, and we will show our vaccination certificate, and we don't mind because that's protecting the whole. But when you just focus on individual responsibility, the United States did not do well in the 1918 pandemic. What's what you're experiencing in the United States at the moment in terms of COVID-19 is a bit like what happened in 1918. So America is a great country for the individual. You know, if you've got a business idea and you want to make it in the world, you, you know, it's the best country in the world for that. And it's a great country for a lot of different things. But it's not a great country, if I may, you know, from a distance make a comment, um, when you are talking about the community coming together and acting as a single community to protect each other. There's a balance in culture in the United States towards the individual and the individual being strong and self-reliance and so on, that we we tend to, we have too, but it's not to the same extent. And it tends to work against you in a pandemic. Mm. That's the problem. Now, Novak Djokovic, of course, he's a top-ranked player. You know that, uh, Norman. He's, there's, some, there's a lot of questions about whether he's vaccinated or not, so whether he's going to play in Australia. I'm hearing rumblings that uh, his medical exemption that players can apply for, not just him, but any player who hasn't gotten vaccinated has been denied. Um, my feeling on all of this is that this is – I'm, I'm guessing, and I want your, your expert opinion on this, that this is going to end up being uh, mandatory at other tournaments around the world. You know, if you want to go play the French Open in France, if you want to go play Wimbledon in the UK, if you want to come at some, you know, to the US Open, do you think that's where this is headed? Because if Djokovic or any other player makes a stand now and says, I'm, I'm not taking the vaccine, uh, I'm not going to play in Australia, to me, this is just the, the, the sort of the tip of the proverbial iceberg here. It feel, feels to me, just someone paying attention, it's not an expert, that this is the way the whole world is going. Would you agree? Um, not necessarily. Um, so at the moment, it makes sense. I'm slightly contradicting myself what I said earlier, but at the moment, the, um, the, the, the insistence on vaccination makes sense because we're not 100% in an Omicron world. So whilst Omicron, whilst Omicron, uh, whilst vaccination um, protects you against severe disease with Omicron, it allows you to become infected. But at least in Australia at the moment, it's not 100%. We've still got Delta around. So as long as you've got Delta around, um, it makes sense to insist on vaccination because Delta is, the vaccines do protect you against transmission of Delta. But over the next month or two, in most countries of the world, we'll get to the point where Delta is only the tiniest percentage of cases, and it's all Omicron. And if it's all Omicron, it becomes, you know, I'm a bit of a hardliner public health. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm in favor of community controls and things to, to protect the community and also to protect the people who are unvaccinated. You've got to do something to help them, um, um, even though they don't necessarily they want to help themselves. Um, but once Omicron is nearly 100%, it doesn't make sense to insist on vaccination, even though it annoys the hell out of you to think that 
who's this tennis player who doesn't want to get vaccinated right. when everybody else is doing that? And there's a kind of arrogance involved in that, perhaps. But in the end, scientifically, if it's Omicron, why would you go to the wire insisting on vaccinations? I'm not sure that other tournaments will follow because it may well be that in a month or two, it's all Omicron and vaccination doesn't protect against transmission. And that's the only rational reason why you would, or the main rational reason why you would do that. Now, whether the tennis federations, the organizations that run tennis feel a duty of care, which is a different matter, uh, to other tennis players in terms of the health and well-being of the players in the dressing rooms, on the field, umpires, ball boys and girls and so on. That's a, that's a different matter. There's probably, um, you know, if, if they want people to be healthy and well, um, they, they might want to insist on it there. They haven't really done so yet much at all. But it becomes less of a, an issue, I think, with Omicron. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name. I don't know if you you, you knew about this, Norman. That Tom McNamara is his name. He was uh, in charge for Tennis Australia for the Australian Open of all the health protocols, you know, the bubbles and so on. And he just resigned within the last week. Uh, I don't know if you heard about this because you're obviously not a, uh, following tennis the way I do. But this was kind of a I feel like a pretty big story that just right before the Australian Open was set to happen. Um, that he resigned. You know, they set up this specific position for this person. Obviously, that's a that's a big time uh, role to have when it comes to protecting the community, protecting the players. I know that was an issue last year for Australia. You know, allowing players, you know, people to come into their country when, as you noted earlier, it's so strict for normal citizens just getting in and out of the country. So, what 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 do those of us in the tennis world make of that? that fact that this gentleman resigned you know, within the last week. Well, I've got no particular insight into that, but in Victoria, in Melbourne, where the uh, competition will take place, <clears throat> they, they were hardliners on lockdown, on cases and so on. And almost at the snap of a finger, they have opened up and restrictions have, they've not disappeared entirely. There are some restrictions in Victoria. So, but the, um, the, the, the really harsh restrictions um, are really no longer there. And either there was no work for this for him to do or, um, or he was complaining that he thought there was still work for him to do, but they weren't going to insist on it. So I, don't, I have no insight into what was going on. But in the world of Omicron, when you're letting it rip, it doesn't make sense that in the, uh, in the tennis world, in a tournament, you're actually going to have too many restrictions. Now, they may decide um, to put a bit of a break on it in terms of how many people they let into the stands, right. how they, you know, the, pin the pinch points, as they say, because they have had outbreaks in Victoria at football matches where outdoors it's very hard to catch it, but where you can catch it is where you're going through the turnstiles and there's lots of people crammed together in a, in a semi-indoor environment. So they may have restrictions like that. But the sort of extreme restrictions that you had last year don't make sense in Victoria where they're really opening up. All right, before I let you go, uh, Norman, I really appreciate you doing this. I know this is sort of your vacation time from your own podcast and your own work on TV. I know you've written a book 
recently as well. Um, so tell me a little bit about the book. And I know it's sort of pre pre Corona. So what's the book about, and why'd you write it? Well, well, it wasn't pre pre Corona. I actually wrote it during the pandemic. Oh, you and, did? Okay. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. So no, this is a book that, so I, I wrote it almost like psychotherapy because I was so sick of reporting <laughs> on COVID. So there's, there's no mention of COVID. If you want a book on COVID, this is not the book to buy. No, no, I just, I just get fed up with health books, the average health book. I know I've been reporting on this for a long time. And, um, and, I, and I really have a thing about the wellness industry and what is up. So usually the average health book, it's often written by a, a male, it's often written by somebody who wags their finger at you and says, you know, what a fool you've been all your life. <laughs> you know, um, if, if only you'd been eating goji berries all your life, your life right. would be transformed. And here is, you know, here's the answer to your life. And usually the average, you know, many health books just, you know, there's, there's a, you know, a great American humorist, H.L. Mencken, who a um, hundred years ago, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, grossly paraphrasing what he said. But basically he said was, for every simple problem, for, for every simple problem, sorry, let me start again. For every complex problem, there's a clear and simple solution, which is always wrong. <laughs> and, if, and, that, and that's the average health book. And so I, I thought, well, look, I, I'm not gonna wag my finger. I'm just actually going to present stuff to you that I've been interested in for all my career. And uh, you make your choice and I'll just give you the evidence here. And here's, here's what works and here's what doesn't. And, and it starts from the, pre you know, we tend to think that for example, just for example, one of the things that the mind and the body are separate and a moment's thought makes you realize, well, it's not our brain is part of our body. And, um, and, and so it's kind of an integrated approach where, you can deal with complexity and think about it and, and come to much more clear-eyed solutions for your own health and well-being. Um, anyway, so it's called So You Think You Know What's Good For You. I actually wrote it for a millennial audience, knowing that uh, for you and me, Patrick, who right. like to think of us as millennials but aren't, um, we would still read it as well because the theme's still interest. So a lot of nutrition, exercise, and what have you, but really stuff you haven't heard before. Um, that gets behind the evidence. So that's why I wrote it. So and, it's called So You Think You Know What's Good For You by Dr. Norman Swan. Check it out. I'm sure we can get it in the U.S., right? Get it on Amazon or it's available. You can, you, you can buy it on Amazon. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not available in shops in America yet, but you can get it online. Well, I'm hoping to get back to Australia soon because it's always one of my favorite uh, trips every year to take um, Norman. I won't be able to do it, unfortunately, again this year, but I hope uh, we can get together. I can meet you. I really appreciate you taking some time educating myself and the, and the tennis audience here. We appreciate it and uh, wish you all the best for 2022. Let's hope this thing ends at some point in this coming year. What do you think? Is this going to be it? 2022 no, ends? Or? No, no, no. As much as I'd like to think it's going to go on, it's, it's going to go on. It will, it will be around for the rest of our lives and it will come and go. It may settle down this year, but I'm not predicting that. I think it's going to be a couple of years before it settles down. But I think we'll be able to welcome you back to our shores. Look forward to that, Patrick, in 2023. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Norman Swan, everyone, on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.